if you would, would you turn in your Bible to John's first letter, chapter 4. We're going to read verses 7 all the way down to verse 21. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 all the way down to verse 21. And I would invite you to stand as we hear God's word read. Hear God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Be near, O God, we pray. Be near to us. Challenge us. Exhort us. Stir us, we pray, with a holy zeal and a holy affection that can only come from having been subdued by such great a love. We pray that you would do this for our good and joy and gladness and your glory alone. 
for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be seated. The church father, Jerome, who would have been um, very near to the time of the apostles, tells a now famous story in his commentary on Galatians chapter 6 about the apostle John. Jerome says this, that when John was near the end of his life, he used to be carried into the church at Ephesus on the arms of his disciples. And he was unable to say anything except this. Little children, love one another. At last, growing weary of hearing the same words over and over again, they asked him, Master, why do you always say this? And as Jerome tells the story, the old apostle replied, Because it is the Lord's command. And if this only is done, it is enough. Once again, John invites us into this space to once again ask the question about love. What does it look like to love? What does it look like to respond to God's love and reciprocate God's love? And before you say, John is really repetitive, can I ask you an honest question? You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to answer out loud. Here's the question. Have you yet mastered this text? Or perhaps more directly, has this text yet mastered you? Master, they asked him, why do you say this over and over again, because the old apostle replied, it is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it is enough. The church is full of people just like you and I. The church is full of people who are preoccupied with our own lives, who are, um, who are set on our own agendas. The church is full of people just like you and I who look at this text and go, that's a really great devotional thought. We love God because he first loved us. <sighs> but why do we need to hear it? Why do we need to be mastered by this? I would submit to you that just as John in his old age repeated this, probably not just to be heard by those around him, but to 
speak gospel to his own heart. That if John said it is the Lord's command, that if only this is done, it's enough. Maybe we need to step into that same place. And so before our eyes glaze past this text and past this chapter to see if John's going to say anything new, perhaps by the Spirit, we ought to ask, why is it again and again and again John would go and apply the test of love to the authenticity of the Christian life? Here's the first thing. The first thing that we have to step into in order to begin to make sense of all of this is the transforming truth that God loves us. Look at what John does. He sets up the big idea of what he's going to say in verses 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. So right away he's saying that the love that... The the biblical love that we are to show one another is not something that wells up from within us naturally. It is not something that we are able to do ourselves. For love is from God, and whoever loves, biblically loves, has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So John is saying here that the way that we will know, the way that we will, that we will understand that we are in Christ, that we are loved by God, is the quality and the quantity to which we in turn express that love. Are you with me so far? Half of you are giving me a Presbyterian amen and half of you need to refill your coffee. God sent his son And God sent his spirit in order that we might be transformed. So first question, what would be the thing that would prevent us from knowing God's love? Let me submit to you this, that sin has blinded us. Sin has blinded us to a degree that we have no idea which end is coming and which end is going. Have you ever been in a room of such complete and utter and pitch black darkness that you would have no idea if there was an obstacle in front of you unless and until you run straight into it? I have. No, I actually did run into a wall. It was really unpleasant. See, in order for this text to make sense, we have to all agree together the prerequisites that John has set out to to understand what he's saying. First, John presumes that we all agree that as humanity, we were made for deep, rich, satisfying communion with God and with one another. This is what we were designed for. We were made to be in deep, rich, satisfying communion with God and with one another. And we also have to acknowledge the fact that sin, sin has severed that link. Sin has 
and has caused blindness to creep over our eyes and deafness to overtake our ears and hardness to overtake our hearts. And it has, it has killed us. So how do we know? Because this is the thing that John keeps coming back to over and over and over again. He's like, how do we know that we have been loved by God? And, and verse 12 sets up what's a very real problem. Look at what he says. No one has ever seen God. How do you know then? Have you ever been sharing the gospel with someone and they say, I, I'd love for any sign If God would just come down and speak, I would know that it's real. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps that's you where you have in your own heart said, I just need to know. I just need need to see something. So what are we left with? Well, we're left with two possibilities. We're left to either gauge God's love for us, either by our feelings or by our faith. This is why it's so important to recognize that love is not just a feeling. Feelings lie. Our feelings present a problem. Feelings tell an incomplete story. So do the circumstances of life. Christianity offers no illusions that life will somehow not be filled with complicated situations and complex feelings. We will find ourselves in the midst of difficult situations, disappointing circumstances, and seasons where there is no happy ending. And beloved, these are not antithetical to Christianity. These are, in fact, promised to be part of Christianity. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Anyone that would stand in a pulpit or on a platform and tell you that because you are now a Christian, you can expect nothing but happiness and rainbows and blessings to come into your life needs to not be on that platform or not be in that pulpit anymore because they're not teaching from the Bible. Our feelings are an incomplete gauge. Our feelings are an inadequate judge. Our feelings present an incomplete picture. If we presume that God is supposed to satisfy us through our circumstances in our life, we will be, and you have all been on this roller coaster with me, haven't you? On a perpetual roller coaster of feeling. Sure, if things are going great, we have no reason then to think or doubt that God loves us. But as soon as our marriage shakes or our kids disappoint or we find ourselves single again or lonely again or on shaky financial ground again or depressed again or struggling with temptation again or just overwhelmed by the weight of sin again it's easy at that point to say god must not love me i know i've told this story to you before but there was a a dear woman at uh, my previous church 
who had just had a season of very difficult providence in her life and had just had a heart attack. She was in the hospital. She was in the cardiac intensive care unit and recovering. And I came to see her in the hospital and sat down with her and, and talked to her for a moment. And she said, Pastor, why is God so angry with me? What have I done? Beloved, our circumstances and our feelings tell an incomplete story. And you know this to be true. It's why so many of you have struggled in your Christian life because you go and you have those, um, you go and have those, those spiritual adrenaline shots. You go to a conference or you have a, a really great uh, season of time in the Word and all of a sudden you feel really good and so you feel like things are great with you and the Lord and then you go into a season where things are really hard and that, that feeling, that, that great euphoria you did have isn't there anymore and you feel like something's changed, God's withholding blessings from you, that somehow God's mad at you, that because your circumstances are different or because your feelings are different, that somehow God has removed himself or become distant from you. And what John is saying here and what I'm saying to you is that's not true. Your feelings tell an incomplete story and your circumstances are not the whole truth. We can either judge the love of God for us based on our feelings or based on what we believe. It's only in the presence of grand, lavish, and glorious love that we can be assured of our love. But how, how does it not feel like love? How does that ring hollow when I say we are, we as the people of God, as those who have been bought and secured and blessed by Jesus, have been in, are in the presence of grand and glorious and lavish love? How does that, why does that ring hollow? Why does that ring hollow? I'll tell you why. It doesn't feel like lavish love because we have lost touch with the despair of our estate apart from God. Simply put, hypothetical sinners need hypothetical saviors. If you had a debt of $5 and someone said, don't worry about it, you'd be like, thanks, that was really sweet. Like the other day in line, I was going to get, into, uh, get my coffee in the drive-thru and pulled up to the window and they're like, someone in front of you paid for your coffee. I'm like, well, that is adorable. <laughs> What's the cost of the order behind me? 20 bucks. I don't care. I can't do that today. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Altruism stops with this car. It's... It was an SUV. We had a lot of people. If you had a debt of $500 and said it was forgiven, there'd be a deeper sense of gratitude, right? But if you took an astronomical number and said that you had a debt of $5 billion, you had a debt that was so insurmountable it would never be paid, it could never be wiped clean, and that debt was paid, what you'd make a fool of yourself in gratitude, wouldn't you? Some of you have student loans right now, and you're like, well, I could actually 
I'd still be willing to make Every man has their price. That's all I'm saying. See, we don't, we don't get the, the lavishness of the love with which we have been shown because we don't get the depths of, uh, we don't get the depth of the problem and we don't get the cost of the solution. So not only has the Son of God died to pay the penalty for your sin, he has become the propitiation, the suitable sacrifice, the suitable substitute for your sin. But God has also removed the blindness from your eyes and the deafness from your ears, softened the hardness of your heart by putting his spirit in there, fulfilling the prophecy that was spoken in Ezekiel chapter 36, where God says through his prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The reason at the core of why it is so hard for us to reciprocate the love with which we have been shown that we quickly lose the depths of the reality of the love which, with, with which we have received. If God would love me at such a cost to him, I can know through and through that he always, always has my best at heart. Listen to me very carefully. If our circumstances tell an incomplete story, if our feelings tell an incomplete story, it is only when our faith is anchored at no other place than the cross of Christ where we see the Son of God given for the people of God to rescue and restore and renew them from the ways in which sin has killed them. If you anchor your faith there, then your feelings are an incomplete story and you can speak truth to them. Your circumstances are an incomplete story and you can speak truth to them but apart from the cross your feelings and your circumstances are all you have and you're on a roller coaster that makes you want to get off the ride the way we know love is by seeing and believing the love that was shown and the depths that we needed that love do you hear me A few weeks ago, I asked the guys in my discipleship group this question. I said, how do we cultivate love for people? To see people and to love people, not generally, but specifically. Because we, we live in an outrage culture. You li- we live in an outrage culture. You understand this, right? There is, there is plenty of fodder every single day to be outraged at someone. If it's not out there, it's in here. We live in an outrage culture. How are we cultivating love for people? I would submit to you that the first step is to see them, 
that is, other people, to see them as in exactly the same boat, the same estate that you were in, that I was in. We were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We were the harassed and helpless ones. You and I, we were absolutely in no way different from anyone else. It's only through seeing the seriousness of sin through the eyes of the Spirit that we can apprehend and know the great love of our Father and our Savior. How are you cultivating? How are you cultivating love? Here's a challenge for you. At some point, make a two-column list. Okay? Make a two-column list. On the one hand, write cultivating love. On the other hand, write cultivating contempt. Fill out the list from your life. All the direct sources and indirect sources. What are the things that are causing you to be snarky and sarcastic? What are the things that are causing you to look at other people with disdain? What are the things that are causing you to see the world and think if only those people would get their act together, this would be a better place. Can I tell you something? When people come in and see me for marriage counseling, the, 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 the way that I know we're in a really big mess is if I ask the couple, why are you here? And they point at each other. Do you know who the biggest problem in the marriage is? It's me. Do you know who the biggest problem in the world is? It's me. The world would be a better place if the people out there get their act together. The world would be a better place if the love of God subdued me. And maybe you too. John says it's only by being transformed by this that we are able then to go out and to love others. This is what must master us. It is what is the depths with, um, through which I was rescued. How was I saved radically from my sin? What was the debt that was canceled? Did I go from being just an average guy to a really great guy? I went from dead in my trespasses and sin to having the righteousness and the record of the Son of the living God who himself gave his life and bled on a tree so that I could breathe and live and see God. Okay, got to keep going. The truth that we must know, how are we then uh, transformed by truth in order to love others if you're following the outline? Point two. Um, if it is true that in order for us to be loved, it came at great cost and sacrifice, it is therefore true that the act of reciprocal love to one another is going to also come at great cost and sacrifice. Again, that is not driven by feelings. That is driven by reality. The reality of the Son of the living God. 
So how are we transformed by this truth? Look at verses 16 and 17. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence before the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are. So also are we in this world. To know God's love, to rely on God's love, is the single most transformative thing that we can ever know or ever experience. We both understand in our minds and our hearts. Look at what he said. You know and you believe. It's not just that you get some facts, but you have been convinced. You have been subdued by a greater love. It is the one thing, the only thing that we depend on over and above all the other things. The worst of our hearts, the peril of our sins and our misdeeds dark are not hidden before the Lord. We don't have to make God out to be who he is not. Listen, the way that you get to the way that you get to atonement and the way that you get to forgiveness is not to somehow make God dumb. God sees your sins. He sees mine. He sees all of them. It's not like he's asleep and he just missed it. Like that time that I was coming home late for my curfew and I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll turn the headlights off. I'll put it in neutral. I'll coast in the driveway. I pull in. I walk in. My mother's sitting at the kitchen table. Do you always drive with your headlights off? God sees everything that you've made an entire lifetime of hiding. He is God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And he is within his rights to act as he pleases because there is no deceit in him. And out of his great love and mercy and compassion, he sent Jesus We know and we believe. We know and believe the love that God has for us. We have been changed because we know that we deserve nothing. And God gave us everything. Lavished us with grace and mercy. There's no fear of what God is really thinking about you right now. There's no sense in which you wonder as God just ticked off again. he sent Jesus because he loves you and he's never stopped loving you and he's never stopped advocating for you and he's not done with you and your circumstances don't tell the whole story and neither do your feelings your life isn't governed by what you feel your life is governed by what you believe and by what you know and John says in verse 16 that what we believe and what we know is that God has done the impossible and done the unthinkable to bring the most unlovely and the most unlikely into his kingdom. John says perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
You would say, I don't know if God loves me. And John would say, what are you talking about? I'm afraid I've just screwed it up too bad. And John would say, I don't know what you're talking about. Don't you see? You were helpless, not hopeless. More on that in a minute. Perfect love casts out fear. This is the simple, unvarnished gospel truth that we love because he first loved us. Why does John repeat the mantra over and over and over again? It is the Lord's command. It is enough. John is confident that those living in God's love, those who know and believe that love has been really and tangibly demonstrated to them in Jesus, will demonstrate it to others, especially to the brothers and sisters in the Lord, but also to the world around them. There is no gray area. If our lives are not marked by the love of our, of our neighbor, we should call our profession of faith of Christ into question. Look, if your list right now of, 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 of cultivating um, compassion over contempt, love over disdain, if you've got a whole lot of stuff on the disdain side, you might have your answer as to why it's so hard to love your neighbor, to love the other, to love the one who is taking the world and driving it off the rails. Do you know how Jesus saw the one who was driving the world off the rails? Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you know who he reserved his harshest words for? The religious leaders who thought they had it all together. Whoever does not love his brother, John says, who he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. If, the gospel, if it is the gospel that enables us to cultivate love for people, what are we doing? What are we doing? Why are we becoming cynical and jaded and sarcastic and caustic? Closing ourselves off to make sure that they don't get in here. What did you and I do with this that was so special? Nothing. Nothing at all. God set his love upon us and did for us that which we could never do ourselves. He loved the unlovable, the unlikely, by doing the impossible, by giving his son for my sake and for yours. There are things that can cause us to be indifferent, to be um, contemptuous of people around us. When we view ourselves as less needy, less desperate, more put together than someone else. When we view our growth and holiness as a result of our hard work and diligence, thus viewing others as not hardworking, as just lazy. Why can't you get your sanctification journey together, hmm, we say. When we need to misdirect from our own shame and guilt by reveling in or pointing out other people's weaknesses. When we seek to diminish or distract from our own neediness by pointing out the need that others have. Beloved, it's, it's only when we drink deeply of the gospel, when we see who we really are and what we really need, that our own response changes. We are not hopeless We're just helpless. 
We were without hope except for the grace and mercy of God. God has demonstrated his help and compassion for us in Jesus. We are helpless. We couldn't change. We cannot change. We will not change apart from the grace of God to us and in us and for us. Do you hear that? You cannot change. You will not change. And you will not change unless God works in you in Jesus. And hallelujah. God has not left us alone. He won't. He, just, he loves us too much. And he, he invites us into the mess, into the work of community. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. He invites us into the mess of this project of community together to know that we have been loved by God, to know and believe, and to have confirmation that this is true because of how we act towards our neighbors, both in the church and outside the church. The world that Jesus said was harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We cannot cultivate compassion from within us. We must look outside of us. Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So friends, while today is still called today, what's your list look like? What are the things that you're pulling into your heart and soul right now? What are the things that you're feeding yourself with, with regard to knowledge of your need before God and the heart of God when your neighbor's need becomes your need? And I'm not talking about affinity groups. I'm not talking about loving the easy people, the charming people. I'm talking about the hard-to-love people, the arrogant, the boastful, the proud. What does it look like to love them, to feel genuine sorrow and sadness for them, to look to God and see them with his eyes, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I'm going to tell you this. It is a supernatural work for sure, but it also, um, it is also up to us to feed ourselves with food that can sustain us for this present life. If all you're hearing and ingesting and thinking about is how wrong everyone else is and how terrible your neighbor is and how they're taking this world and driving it straight to the pit of that place that doesn't sound so good, watch out. He who can't love his neighbor whom he has seen is going to have a hard time loving God whom he hasn't seen. But here's the good news. Today's not over yet. And you have everything that you need in you right now for life and godliness. The person that you were walking in those doors when we started at 10.15 this morning does not have to be the person that you are when you walk out these doors now. Because he that is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. You want to be different? Today's the first day of the rest of your life. Ask God for his help and he'll change you.